Welcome to Every Moment His, a podcast dedicated to contemplating how God's preached Word impacts every moment of our lives. This sermon was preached at Holy Cross in Kearney, Nebraska by Pastor John Rasmussen. Let's begin in verse 8. The Apostle Paul writes, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That's God's word for us today. So really, uh, there's kind of like two sections here, and each of them could be their own sermon. So I'm going to give you one sermon that's going to take about two minutes, and then we'll go into the second one. Sound good? Uh, So briefly, I just want to cover verses 8 through 15. And really, I want you to see here why Paul's writing this letter, what's motivating him. Uh, Paul tells us in verse 8 that he's heard about the impact that the gospel has made in Rome. And he's excited about that. And so now in verses 11 and 12, Paul says, I want to come and see you. I've never met you before. Did you know that? That Paul had never met the Romans before he wrote to them, but he heard about their faith and he said, I want to come see you. I want to come to the most powerful city in the world and meet these Christians because I've heard about your faith. Paul wants to build them up in the gospel. Paul wants to be built up in the gospel. In other words, Paul wants to get together and rejoice in what God has done through Christ so that the body of Christ might be stronger. And then in verses 13 through 15, he says, I want to come to you also so I can preach. I want to preach the gospel to those who are in Rome, in this imperial city, the most important city in the world at that time. And later on in the letter, we'll see that Paul actually wants to form a relationship with these Christians so that they could then send him on and support him financially as he sails to Spain to bring the gospels, the gospel even farther than it had gone yet. That's the first sermon, real quick. But now I want to take a look at verses 16 through 17. And if you have something to write with, I want you just to underline all those verses. 16 through 17, maybe just circle them, put a little star right next to those verses, do something that will remind you that these two verses are probably the most important verses in Romans. Last week we talked about how Romans is likely one of the most important things ever written, 
And this week I want you to know that verses 16 through 17 are probably the most important two verses in the entire letter because what Paul's doing in those two verses is he's taken all of the gospel, everything he's going to say in all 16 chapters, and he's condensing it down into two verses. We're going to spend some time today uh, getting at the center of what those verses are, but really we'll spend the rest of the sermon series figuring out what Paul means in these two verses. Uh, Some of you might remember this. Anybody remember this from your childhood? You know, Mr. Owl, exactly how many licks does it take to get to the Tootsie Roll center of a Tootsie Pop? I think Mr. Owl said three and then he bit into it, right? Um, But I want you to think about these two verses, verses 16 and 17, as a hard piece of candy with a delicious center. Uh, it's going to take some licks, right, to get to the center of this. I mean, this is, these are dense verses, right? I mean, big words like righteousness and salvation and faith, Jew and Greek, uh, all these things. What do they mean? What exactly does Paul mean by that? I want you to think about these verses as sort of like a, a piece of hard candy that's going to take a lot of licks, right, to get to the center. And so that's what we're going to be all about in these following weeks, but we're going to we're going to start, we'll give it a, a, actually four licks here. Uh, we're going to go through four things that Paul says that the gospel is. So in verse 16, circle the word gospel. Put a big circle around that. Now, Paul is writing Romans about the gospel, and he's telling us in verses 16 and 17 what the gospel is. So we'll see four things that the gospel is. Remember, gospel means what? Good news, right? Gospel means good news. It's a message of victory. It's a declaration of good news, not about something we did, but about something God did. That's what the gospel is. But what exactly is this gospel? Well, first Paul says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, meaning that this message, when people hear it, has the power to save them. Well, save them from what? What does that word salvation mean? The word salvation really means to be rescued from a dire set of circumstances. It means you're in big trouble and you don't have any help and somebody rescues you. That's what salvation means. On the one hand, it can mean bodily rescue, like being healed in your body. For example, in the Gospels, Jesus says to those that he heals, go in peace, your faith has saved you. It's given you salvation. You've been delivered. But in a deeper sense, this means the rescue, the deliverance, the saving of your entire person from sin, death, and hell. We call this the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. That's the ultimate salvation that we receive from Christ. And Paul says the gospel has the power to give this salvation to you so that it's yours. Now, I want to focus on that word power a little bit because I don't think there's any mistake made by Paul when he uses that word power. He uses that word power very intentionally because Rome was a city in an empire that was obsessed with power. For example, Rome conquered the whole known world at that time through its imperial power. Rome imposed its will, really through crucifixion was one of the ways, 
that basically Rome exerted its power and, and, and showed the world that it was in charge. And so people in Rome were obsessed with status and power. For example, to have citizenship was the greatest thing you could have in Rome. Because if you were a citizen of Rome, you had power. If you were not a citizen, you had no power and no rights. And so in Rome, you would have believed that something like the imperial power of Rome or the citizenship confirmed by Rome was power for salvation. If we go out from Rome a little bit, we see that everybody has some type of power that they believe gives salvation. The Greeks, for example, Paul tells us that the Greeks boasted in wisdom and learning and philosophy. This was the society in which you got Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, these great thinkers, and the Greeks boasted in their wisdom and learning, and they thought that that was power for salvation. What about the Jews? What did the Jews think was power for salvation? As we'll find out later in Paul's letter, they thought it was the keeping of the law of Moses. They thought that observing all the commandments of God, keeping the law, was power for salvation. And I don't think that we're any different. We've got different things that we worship. Uh, There's a book that came out uh, about two years ago uh, by David Zoll called Seculosity, uh, how Uh, Career and parenting and technology, politics, romance became our new religion and what to do about it. The argument that Zal makes is that, you know, we might think that as Americans we're less religious these days, but the truth is that we're actually more religious. We're just worshiping different things in place of God. Things like career or how good of a parent you are or uh, even food, you know, people get obsessed with different lifestyles with regard to food Uh, or politics. Why are people so, you know, ravenous and angry and upset these days? It's because they really think that maybe their politics is power for salvation, right? And when that power is frustrated, people get angry. Uh, Or, for example, uh, we can think of romance, for example. I mean, people think that being in a romantic relationship might confer power for salvation. Money, anything, right? There's all these different ways that we might grab onto power and we might say, that is my power for salvation, to be delivered from my set of circumstances. And yet Paul's reminding us that none of those things have the power to save because they all depend on you. And the object of your faith is not reliable if it's something like money or success, career, how good of a parent you are, etc. None of those things save. Paul is saying that it's only help from the outside, which is Christ. Only that can save. The gospel alone has the power to save. The next thing that Paul would point out to us is this, is that the gospel is received by faith. It's not something that you earn. It's not something you work for. A lot of things in life come to us that way, right? There's a lot of hard work that goes into our career, hard work that goes into parenting, hard work that comes into you know, any project we do in life. And yet Paul is saying that this is not a good news that you receive through your effort, your moral performance. It's rather something that is received through faith. 
Paul says that it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And that word believe simply means to have faith. Um, the, the, um, the word for believe here is basically the verb form of faith. In Greek, uh, there's the, the noun faith and then there's the verb faith, to have faith. That's what that word means. To everyone who has faith. And then we see that word faith come up again. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Meaning it's from faith from the beginning to the end. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. There Paul's quoting our Old Testament reading from Habakkuk. The gospel is received by faith. Now, what exactly is faith? In popular culture, faith is kind of a flimsy, thin, good feels kind of thing. In popular culture, faith is like positive vibes, right? Just feeling confident, like, I just got faith. That's not what Paul means. That's not what the scriptures mean when they talk about faith. Martin Luther says that to have faith means to have a daring, bold confidence in God's promises. Meaning that God gives a promise and we say, yes, I believe it. I bank my whole life on it. Uh, a good way to explain faith would be ziplining. I went to Colorado this summer uh, to the Royal Gorge. And anybody been to the Royal Gorge? It gives you a little feeling in your stomach when you peek over that bridge and look thousands of feet down, right? It's, it's a long way down, the Royal Gorge. Um, I was brave enough to get into the little gondola car thing that, you know, rides over across. Not so much with the zip lining. My son wanted to do it, but he wasn't tall enough. Um, that takes a little bit of guts, right, uh, to just zip line across this gorge. Um, now, if you're going to do that, you need to have faith in the stability of the cable, right, that it's anchored into a good source and that that harness they put you in is reliable. That's what faith is. It's, it's when God speaks a promise to you and you get in, you buckle up and you say, I'm, I'm putting my whole life on this thing. I believe this is going to hold me up. It's reliable and I'm not going to fall, but I'm safe. That's what faith is. Um, now notice that faith is not just believing a certain set of facts to be true. So, for example, if you were like me, I was standing on the one side of the Royal Gorge looking at those zip lines, and I said, intellectually, I believe, I believe it's a factual statement that that will hold people up. I don't think anybody's going to die today. But that's quite a different thing than actually getting in, buckling up, and going across. That's what biblical faith is. It means not only that we believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead, but that we place our faith, we, we rest our life on that, right? And we say, that's, that's where it is. I'm going to put my trust in that. That's what biblical faith is. And Paul is saying it's through that faith that we receive the gospel that saves us. Now, don't get me wrong here. One thing I don't want you to think is that this faith is just another work you do. That's not what Paul's saying. This faith is actually created in you by the Holy Spirit through the reliability of who God is. It's kind of like, uh, do babies choose to trust their parents? It's not like a six-month-old baby says, today I've chosen to trust mom. No. 
that faith, that trust, that attachment comes about naturally because of the reliability of the parent, feeding and changing diapers and whatnot. And it's the same way with God, is that God speaks to us this reliable promise, which is the gospel, and we trust in it, and that's faith. We bank our whole life on it. We trust that it will save us. The next thing about the gospel is this, is that the gospel is for everyone. Look what Paul says. He says that this gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, not just some people, everyone. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. And that word Greek is kind of shorthand for anybody that's not Jewish, anybody that's outside of Israel. Now, this might seem kind of obvious to us because we live in a society that values equality, right? We, we want to live in a society where it doesn't matter if you are black or white. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. Everybody has access to the same rights. But this was not believed in the ancient world, nor did people think this should be believed. In the ancient Roman world, there were these distinctions between Jews over here and Gentiles over here. Male and female separate. Males have a place of privilege, females not so much. Slave and free, rich and poor, citizen, not citizen. There were all these ways in the ancient world that you were kind of put in your place based on your status. And remember, Rome was a society obsessed with status. But here comes the gospel, and the gospel proclaims that this message of God's forgiveness and mercy becoming a part of God's family is for everybody. So get this. The most powerful person in Rome with citizenship, right, would come into the kingdom of God through the same baptismal waters as somebody who was, say, a female slave with no rights, with no money. The richest person comes in the same way as the poor. The Jew comes in the same way as the Greek. Everybody comes into the kingdom of God and has equal status in it as God's beloved sons and daughters. Certainly there's distinctions that, uh, that we have in this life, you know, as we do our vocations, as we live in this daily life. Uh, there still is rich and poor, etc. And yet, in the church, there's no distinction. But we're all baptized into one Christ. Think of it this way. I mean, for the first time ever, something crazy happens in Christianity. We might take it for granted, mostly because a lot of the equality that we believe in comes from the gospel. But for the first time ever in the first century, you would have had Jews and Gentiles, male and female, slave and free, rich and poor, citizen and not citizen, gathering around the Lord's altar and communing together with the very body and blood of Christ. That kind of thing just didn't happen in the ancient world, but it happened in the church because the gospel's for everyone. You see, if, if you believe that your salvation rests in some power in you, then that means that some people have an advantage and other people have a disadvantage. 
So, for example, Jews thought they had an advantage because, hey, we got the law. We can keep it. The Gentiles, whatever, they don't have the law, right? If you believe that your salvation is based on power in the Roman world, then if you're a citizen, you're in a great place. But if you're not, too bad for you. All these different ways that we think we can be saved by our own power, really there's some people that have salvation ready and at hand and other people are just, well, tough luck, right? But it's only in the Christian faith that salvation is given to all equally. God makes no distinction between Jew or Gentile or anything else. But he saves all who call upon him regardless of their background. Number four, Paul says that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, what in the world does that mean? The righteousness of God. Well, it means a lot of things. On the one hand, it means that God is just, God is fair, God is equitable, God is a just judge, He's fair. But it has a deeper meaning. That deeper meaning means that God is faithful to his promises, namely the promise that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he would bless the whole world through Abraham and his descendants. Basically, God is faithful to his promise to rescue the world. That's what Paul means by the righteousness of God here. And so God will do something, God in his righteousness will do something that will save his people. God will do something righteous that will make unrighteous people righteous in a righteous way. If that doesn't make sense right now, that's okay. We're going to spend all of chapter 3 going through that. Uh, that. That God is righteous. He must stay true to his character to punish sin. And yet God is love and he loves his creation. And so God will do something through Jesus Christ, namely in his cross, that will make unrighteous people righteous in a way that doesn't betray God's own righteousness, meaning that God will not excuse sin, but he will deal with it in a way that saves us. This is the great epiphany that Martin Luther had as he studied Romans, as he realized that God's righteousness is not the righteousness by which he punishes sinners justly, but rather God's righteousness is that with which he makes unrighteous people righteous by what Christ has done for us. Turn with me, if you would, to chapter 3. I just want to zoom forward a little bit. Sometime in February we'll be here. Chapter 3, verse 20. Chapter 3, verse 20, Paul says, For by works of the law, that means your effort, your keeping the commandments, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. The word justified just simply means to be declared righteous, to be given a status of righteousness before God, meaning that you're innocent before God. Paul says that by works of the law, by moral effort, nobody's going to be made right with God in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of what? Sin. The law shows us that we need righteousness and that we're not righteous. But look with me at verse 21. But now the what? The righteousness of God, right? But now the righteousness of God has been manifested 
apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Basically, uh, Paul's saying that the way that God saves people is through God's righteousness, not ours, and the whole Old Testament talks about it. But now it's been revealed to us fully. Look at verse 22. The righteousness of God through what? Faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. In other words, they are made righteous by his grace as a gift through what? The redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So what is the righteousness of God? Friends, it's right there. It's the cross of Christ. That is the event, the mighty saving action of God by which a righteous God makes unrighteous people righteous. That's what Paul's talking about in Romans. So I want you to think about the righteousness of God this way. Uh, this picture is that, you know, that zipline cable anchored in securely, right? For you to trust in your own works, in your own righteousness, in any other power for salvation is like you trying to zipline across the Royal Gorge on like a paper mache zipline. It's not going to work. But for you to put your faith in the righteousness of God, which makes you righteous through faith in Jesus, you're anchored in, right? I want you to see that the righteousness of God, his action to save you in Christ, that is the thing in which we trust. It's what we're harnessed to. It's what's going to bring us safely across the gorge, right? That and that alone is what we trust in for our salvation. And that is what Paul will speak about in the next chapters of Romans. But a closing question. Is this righteousness of God by which he makes unrighteous people righteous, is that going to be good news to you unless you really understand your own unrighteousness? I mean, if you think that sin in your life is kind of like, you know, parking ticket violations before the throne of God, then you're going to be like, yeah, Jesus is fine. He's all right. I might need him sometimes. But if you recognize the magnitude and the depth of your own sin and depravity, how sin has so thoroughly corrupted everything in our lives, even despite our best effort, then Jesus is going to make a, a bigger difference, right? He's not going to be trivial to us. He's not going to be in our peripheral vision. We're going to be locked front and center with Jesus, right? We're going to be anchored to him. It's a quote, um, and this quote is going to lead us into the next section of our sermon series, which starts next week. The quote is from Philip Melanchthon, uh, who was a contemporary of Martin Luther. He said, We cannot know the magnitude of Christ's grace unless we first recognize our malady. And so I want you to see what Paul's doing here in these next verses as we go into next week. So I have the last verse here in our text today and the first verse from next week. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. But in verse 18, Paul turns his argument and he says, for the wrath of God is revealed 
from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so what Paul's going to do is Paul's going to go down into this deep valley where he's going to show us the reality of our unrighteousness. He's going to basically bring the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, to God's court, and he's going to accuse them as guilty for breaking God's law. And then at just at the point that the Jews are saying, yeah, Paul, get those Gentiles. They're lawless. They break God's law. Paul's going to say, and what about you who have God's law but break it in secret as hypocrites? And by the time we get to, to chapter 3, Paul's going to have the whole world on trial and everybody's going to be guilty. But that's setting us up so that we can hear the best news, the news of the gospel, that God will make us righteous, not through our righteousness, but through the righteousness of Christ. And so we read on, God will show us the reality of our sin, but only so that he might show us the strength and the goodness of our Savior. Amen.